Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. If you're struggling with drugs, alcohol, gambling or food, or concerned about somebody who is, tune in to The Living Free Show on 3CR at 1pm every Thursday. I don't know how I got there, but and I couldn't stop it. I had stopped expecting that anybody cared. Never enough. I'm never enough. It's never enough. He's never enough. That was the confusion. Tune in to Living Free, stories of recovery from addictive behaviour, Thursdays at 1pm on 3CR. Or listen at 3CR on digital radio or podcasts and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. Being able to centre myself and be okay in myself and turn my world around. Living free. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'm Anne, and with co-host Bill, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders past and present and to acknowledge that sovereignty over this land was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drug, alcohol, gambling, food and other addictions. Our guests share their recovery stories and highlight that shared experience saves lives. This week, I'm joined by Andrea, a member of Al-Anon Family Groups. Al-Anon helps families and friends of alcoholics recover from the effects of living with someone whose drinking is a problem. Welcome, Andrea. Are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you, Anne. <laughs> thanks for thanks for uh, calling in today. Um, so, as you know, Andrea and everyone out there, alcoholism, or, or you might want to call it alcohol abuse or problem drinking, affects thousands of families in Australia and worldwide. So, Andrea, um, it's affected you. Um, can you tell us um, who was the, the drinker in your life? Well, Anne, it started with my mum and my dad. Mm-hmm. They're both alcoholics. Yep. Um, my brother's an alcoholic. Yep. My two best friends were alcoholics. I married a drug addict. And my dad's four siblings out of the four, three of them were alcoholics. And my mum had four siblings. And out of the four, three of them were alcoholics. So it's rife in my family of origin. And it's completely amazing that you've... Have you avoided it yourself? Yes. Yeah, I didn't get the gene. My brother got it, yep. and I didn't. Yep, yep. I, 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 um, it's astonishing. It's amazing how that's happened. Mm-hmm. It does sound mm. like a gene, doesn't it? I think it is. Mm. I think it is too. Um, there's some members of my family have got it, and some haven't. And we all we all drink, but um, only some have got a problem with addiction. Correct. Yep. So, can yeah. you take us back to where you grew up, Andrea? Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Sure, and well, I grew up in, I was born in the early 60s, mm-hmm. and I grew up in a very traditional home. My dad went out to work, and my mum was the homemaker. Now, as I said, mum and dad both were raised in alcoholic homes. They both came from families where 
one of their parents were alcoholics and the other parents, which we call an alanonic, mm. which is usually the one that runs around like a lunatic mm. trying to control, fix, manage all of the issues that go on in a home when you do have a parent that is an alcoholic. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I have uh, a, a younger brother. He's three years younger than I am. Um, I call him high-functioning alcoholic. He's got a job, a wife, a family. But my parents, my dad's side of the family especially, had this golden child image of the son. Mm. The daughters were like Cinderella. You were there to be the slave, do all the cooking and cleaning and be in the house and keep your mouth shut and do as the men told you. And it was their way or the highway. So my brother was treated very, very differently to the way I was treated. Mm. Um, One thing that I remember succinctly was when my brother turned 18, he woke up and there was a car sitting out the front in the driveway with a bow on it, happy birthday, son from dad. Mm. Now, I'd turned 18 three years prior and I was still catching the bus and getting myself around because I couldn't afford to buy a car. Mm. So, um, Andrea, I, Andrea, the word that comes to mind there is resentment. <laughs> yes, very much so. Mm. And how did that play, how so. did that play out? Resentment's a massive thing because we have expectations on how we're treated, and when we're not treated like that, the disappointment is grave. Mm. And grave disappointment in me led to resentment. And I loved my brother, but I didn't like him, and I did resent him, and I resented my parents treating him that way and me the the other way. And um, I have girl cousins as well who, uh, as we've aged, we've been able to sit down and have a chat with each other about the way our brothers were raised and the way we were raised. Mm. Bit of healing there. And how did you cope with the resentment at the time? I mean, you wouldn't have been coping with it at the time. How did you express it at the time? I didn't express anything and I learned very early on in my home not to have any feelings or thoughts. Mm. I stuffed everything down. Um, It wasn't safe. I never answered back. I never stood up, spoke out. It just wasn't safe. My dad was very authoritarian. Mm. It was his way or the highway. You did as you were told and if you misbehaved, it was corporal punishment. So I stuffed down, bottled all my feelings and emotions, and it made me very, very sick. But I do know that I wasn't pleasant to my brother. Mm-hmm. I didn't like him. So you and took I it took out. It out. I do not have a relationship with him. I do not have a relationship with him now, mm. to this day. Yep. Mm. And that's part of the, the disease, isn't it? So you, you couldn't fight back against the, uh, the you know, the, the real authoritarian, but you could take it out on someone that was a little bit safer. And vice versa, I'm sure. Yeah, and it wasn't even his fault either. No. Mm. Take us to your teenage years then, or take us to school. How did, how did you go at school, outside of the, the home? Well, we moved around a lot. My dad was a salesman, and um, we went to live in New Zealand when I was three. So my first year of kindergarten, we lived in Auckland, and the next year I went to grade one in Wellington, and then we went to Christchurch the next year, and the next year Dunedin, and then... The next year, back in Australia, and I started school in Bulleen. And I I was lucky. I made a lot of friends easily. 
I was very sporty, and I really loved school. I loved being in school. I found it a safe place to be. Um, uh, we were raised Catholic. Went to Catholic Ladies College for secondary. Um, so I really enjoyed my school years. I had a lot of friends. Mm, so that's a, that's a real protective, um, you know, you, you you got a rough deal with two alcoholic parents and then you got a good deal in being able to m- make friends and enjoy school and be good at sport. So Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It gave me the other side of the coin. Yeah. Um, and were there adults in that situation that, that were better role models for you or that, that noticed you oh, in any way? Or Absolutely. Absolutely. Um I had a couple of best friends and you know, I was I was a really good girl. I felt that if I did everything perfectly and mm. I was friendly and kind and quiet then people would like me. I was a people pleaser. Mm. But I had girlfriends that I would their their parents were very, very welcoming and I would go for sleepovers. I was allowed to go for sleepovers. Um and I was allowed to go and play at their houses and hang out with them as I got older. And I saw the relationships that they had with their parents and I got on really well with their parents. I felt incredibly loved, supported, validated. I felt safe at all times. I I knew that, you know, if I ran around like a silly girl giggling or carrying on or if I cried for some reason, I wasn't going to get punished Mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. You know, my dad was very much, you know, if, if you... If you cry, I'll give you something to cry about. Yeah, I remember that phrase. <laughs> it, it is. It's just the old-fashioned way is, of, of raising mm. children. Mm. But it just added to that level of uh, insecurity, hypervigilance, mm. hyper, hypersensitivity to everyone else's mood. Yeah. Um, but I was very, very lucky because I got to see the other side, as you said, though, with resentment that you just brought up was really interesting because I was extremely jealous of the relationships they had with their parents and their siblings. I wanted to be a part of their family and I I soaked it all in. But deep down inside, I'd cry myself to sleep because I was desperately unhappy in my home and wanted what they had. Yeah, yeah. So, so moving on to your adult life, Andrea, with that with that resentment and this tendency to to be a people pleaser. But still, with a you know a, a gift and being able to make friends, how how was your early adult life? Um, good. I got out of the house very young. Mm. I moved out at seventeen. Got myself a job, and um, you know, back in the day, you'd go down to the newsagent and pick up a paper and look in the back, and it would say, "Girl looking for a girl to rent a room in the flat." So you'd go to the phone booth and you'd ring up and I did that and I found a girl and um, I had my suitcase and my handbag and Mm. I walked in to have a look around the flat and I said, this is fine, this will work. And she said, when would you like to move in? I said, well, I'm here, this is me. And uh, I slept on the floor and um, I bought clothes as I went along Mm. because my exit from my home of origin was extreme and I just managed to leave with basically my handbag and the clothes on my back. And I started all over again, all by myself. Mm. I didn't have any contact with my parents for at least three years after that. Mm -hmm. And I was on my own. So I learned the hard way Mm. how how to manage. And um, 
do you, what was your experience then with uh, with alcoholism in your adult life? Well, unfortunately, I met a guy and I was extremely attracted to him. He was very good at love bombing and mm. acting like I wanted. And his symptoms, his isms, his behaviours were very familiar to me. And he didn't drink. So oh. I knew drinking was the issue in my home. And he didn't drink. So I thought, oh, this is all good, wonderful, wonderful. I found out later that he'd stopped drinking at 16 because he'd had a major problem from about 12, 13, 14, oh, 15. Yeah. Anyway, he took drugs on the weekend with his mate, but he went out on the weekends and did all that. And I never saw him on the weekends. I was a through-the-week girlfriend. So I didn't... In my obvious state of naivety and believing that this is the world... These are my uncles and aunties. These are my cousins and friends. This is how it's all done. I didn't see his drug taking as going to be an issue. 18 years later, I'm walking around on eggshells. I'm listening for his car to come in the drive. I've got two small children. You know, if they mm. wanted a biscuit five minutes before I dished up dinner, I gave them a biscuit to keep them quiet because yeah. I needed to yeah. keep the peace. Mm-hmm. I needed to keep the lid on everything. I needed to keep everything just the way I'd done my whole years of growing up mm. in that home. I tried to fix everything, I tried to sort everything, and I became a perfectionist. The kids were always wonderful, I was wonderful, the house was wonderful, everything was fantastic. And my ex-husband of 18 years, he was such a negative narcissist that I ended up losing myself. Mm. I questioned everything I said and did. He put me down every minute of the day. And I could see the behaviour in his father and mother was exactly the same. But he didn't know any better either, and I understand that now. But I couldn't have made a decision to save myself. And I became a shell of myself. I became even more depressed and anxious, and I was having panic attacks. And all I did was I put on their masks. I Mm. pretended like a chameleon, and I would become the person that I thought was expected when I was in front of whoever it was. Mm-hmm. When I was in front of this person, I behaved in that way. When I was in front of this person, I behaved in that way. And I, look, I mean, you know, Nicole Kidman's out there winning Golden Globes and Academy Awards. Mate, you should have seen the acting skills I have. <laughs> to, be able to, to be able to navigate growing up with these two parents, Dad was what I call, Dad was what I call high-functioning. He had a job, he went to work every day came home and he got drunk every night. Mm. And he'd sit in that chair and he'd sit in that chair and sit in that chair. And then all of a sudden, he'd snap. Mm. Like if, if my brother and I did something, made a noise, irritated him in any way, he would just snap. And in his day, punishment was smash your heads together. Mm. That's how he'd been brought up. Mm-hmm. So he would grab my brother and I and smash our heads together. Mm. Now my mother was... Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And this is why I knew from a very early age, around eight, that alcohol was the problem in my home. Because when she drank, her personality changed Mm. completely. She was a lovely, sweet, quiet lady when she was sober. And my mum grew up with her punishment was being boxed around the ears. Mm. So you'd get a punch in the ear Mm. for that bad behaviour. And my mum would pick up whatever was at hand and hit us over the head with it. Now, when things were happening in the house, I'd throw myself over my brother's little body and protect him 
and I'd take it all. I tried to protect him. I tried to love him. I tried to care for him. And I said to him years and years later, Rob, why aren't we close? What, what's happened? What, why don't you have a relationship with me? Why don't you want to? And he said to me, he said, you know why? Because I had two insane mothers. You never left me alone. Because ah. I tried to control him the way I controlled myself so that I could, if we were really good and things were really quiet, mum and dad might not drink, mum and dad might not go off, we might not get hurt. So I became this perfectionist that was hypersensitive, hypervigilant, trying to fix everything. Andrew, Andrew you, you've just, um, if there's anyone out there who doesn't know what it lives, what it's like to live in an alcoholic situation, you've described it so in so much uh, detail and you've just really got it perfect how um, everybody is affected. Um, it's not just one person drinking. Everybody's affected. Everyone's trying to do their best and, and yet it, it all goes so badly wrong and people end up fragmented and estranged and it's... Uh, awful. We're going to take a little break and um, and we'll come back and hear more of your storytelling. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, Andrea. Um, this is a song uh, by Nathan May and it's called Gotta Start Somewhere. You give me many things but you can't replace The things you lost and the things you take We need an upper D, upper D attitude Well you help me and I help you Cause it's gotta start somewhere Great grandfather worked on the railway line Woke grandmother up from her dream time New generation shining through There's nothing in the world that love can't do As good as it was, no, we can't go back Everyone riding on this one-way track Laws and coaches, old and new It gets dark in the tunnel, but we're gonna break through Cause we gotta start somewhere Cause we gotta start somewhere Lost a lot of things but not the truth So get on board, there's no excuse We're all so busy in this crazy life But it don't take much to make things right Cause we gotta start somewhere 
If we all live the way we should Respect each other intentions good Learn to live without the shame Forgiveness now without the blame It's gotta start somewhere It's gotta start somewhere To your heart, what it has to say. It's gotta start somewhere. We need an upper D, upper D attitude. It's gotta start somewhere. You help me and I help you. It's gotta start somewhere. Much to learn, long way to go. It's gotta start somewhere. Together now we can grow. But it's gotta start somewhere. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire on Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. This is a Living Free Show on 3CR 855 kilohertz on your AM radio dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you would like to listen to one of our many podcasts, then you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. I'm talking today with Andrea, a member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon, in which people affected by someone else's drinking share their experience, strength and hope to solve their common problems. Hi, Andrea. Thank you. Hi. Um, so uh, you, you spoke really well there before, really um, giving a vivid picture of what it's like in an alcoholic um, household, um, the effects on you when you get into your adult life and how you end up um, uh, basically fragmented and, and sort of just trying to fit in with whoever you're with. So when did you first realise that you needed to get help for yourself? It was amazing, really, because I'd been going to my doctor for years and years and years, and I'd been sitting in front of him saying, oh, look, you know, I've got a 
throat infection again. I've got a chest infection again. I've got the flu again. Like, I'm really run down. I can't sleep. I feel sick. I'm vomiting all the time. I've got diarrhoea. All these things. And the doctor would just go on and on and on. Um, oh, yeah, take this, take that. He probably looked at me and thought, oh, well, you know, she's not very well person. But he just, but treated, he just treated all your separate symptoms. Absolutely. No one ever stopped and looked at me as a person and thought, there's something wrong with this woman. Mm. She's not well. She's not doing well. Just here's your antidepressant. Let's turn the volume up. Give you more, give you more, give you more. And off you go, off you go, off you go. Um, and I, as a young mum, I'm sure I had postnatal depression as well. And that wasn't even looked at too. And I just started going to counsellors and therapists. And I realised that I actually fell into Al-Anon. I didn't, I, I had heard about AA but I had never heard about Al-Anon. Um, my parents never found AA. Unfortunately, they died alcoholics. They never got any recovery in their lives. Um, but when I was 38, I found Al-Anon. And I came into the room and I sat in my first meeting and there were people sitting around the table. And because I was a newcomer, they decided the meeting topic would be step one. Mm. And step one talks about we admit that we're powerless over someone else's alcoholism and that our life has become unmanageable due to our powerlessness. And I can't tell you the relief I felt that very first meeting. All of a sudden I was being told and listening to people sharing their stories about how they couldn't control it. They didn't cause it. They can't control it and they can't cure it. Someone else's addiction is entirely up to them to look at themselves. It doesn't matter what I do, what I say, how I act. None of that changed the fact that my mother picked up a drink. None of it. And there's no way you could, how could, when you think about it rationally, you, there's no way you could stop someone having an addiction and yet. Um, that's why your life becomes unmanageable, isn't it? It's that trying all, everything to try and manage it. You're trying to manage something that is in, unmanageable. It's too big for you. Correct. And quite often the person with the addiction can't manage it, let alone anyone else. Absolutely. So I found at 38 I came in and I hated my family. I hated my parents. I hated my ex. I blamed everyone else for all of my problems. If only they'd done that, if only they'd stop, if only they'd gone to work, if only they'd earned the money, if only they didn't drink that much, if only they'd been a nice person. <laughs> like, if only you'd done the things that I knew you should be doing, none of this would have happened. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely blamed everyone. Now, I came to Al-Anon and I learned that I'd actually played a role. I had had a role in my behaviour attributing to my in the family. I'd learned at my mother's knee how to be a perfectionist, how to be controlling, how to be manipulating, mothering, smothering, enabling. But I did all of those things in the name of love. I was trying to help. I was trying to fix. I was trying to solve. But what I was actually doing was, especially with my ex, I enabled him. I ran his business. I looked after the house. Mm. I went to work. I paid the bills. Kids and I were perfect. That poor man had nothing to contribute to our lives because I robbed him of that 
by taking on all of his responsibilities and I suffered all of the consequences of his drug addiction. Mm. How rude. Who do I think I am? I thought I was God. I felt that I knew it all. And I also understand now that, you know, I don't know what anyone else's soul is on this plane to learn. I have enough lessons of my own to learn before Mm. I move on. Who am I to think that I can circumvent or change someone else's lessons or alleviate their pain, even because I love them so much, I've got to let them feel the pain. I've got to let them go. I've got to let them suffer their own consequences because they'll never hit rock bottom. They'll never have a a spiritual awakening. They'll never have a moment where they can sit back and go, well, I beat that. I did that. I fixed that. I solved Mm. that. I, I feel good about myself, which is where I am today because I came to recovery Mm. and I came in kicking and screaming, like, why do I have to go? Why can't they go? Why don't they do what they need to do? But I came in realising, I came in and realised that I needed to change my attitude. I needed to change my behaviour because my mindset was hyper-focused on everybody else's negatives defects of character, behaviours, my whole focus. If you'd asked what colour do they like, I could have told you. What's his favourite meal? Mm-hmm. Tell you. What's their favourite song? Could have told you. Mm-hmm. Ask me what I want for Christmas. No, no, nothing. I don't mm-hmm. need anything. I have no idea what I want or need. None. I heard a really funny joke. Well, <laughs> sort of funny. Uh, the other day, um, you might know it, what... Does uh, Al-Anon member see, or not an Al-Anon member, sorry, the, you know, someone with an alcoholic in their family, what do, what do they see the moment before they die? And it's that somebody else's life's flashing before their eyes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or I'm lying dying and all I am is worried about how they'll manage and how they'll cope. Yeah, in the meantime. Well, I've been. <laughs> so how long did it did it? Did it annoy you at first then when you went to meetings and they said you, you've got to change your attitude or that, that you once you've stopped looking at, take your eyes off that person because you can't uh, cause, you didn't cause it, you can't control yeah. it, you can't cure it. Did it annoy you to hear that you had to focus on yourself or did you know? No, I think deep down inside my belly, I had a, a gut instinct that I'd hit my rock bottom and I'd had enough. I had had enough. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know what to do. I just didn't know what I wanted, but I knew very, very clearly what I did not want any longer. And Mm. the only person that could make any dent, any change in any of that was me. And I came to meetings. I went every single week and I sat on that seat and I opened my ears and I shut my mouth. Mm. And I learned by hearing and listening other people talk about how they managed what I felt were insurmountable issues, how they coped, and I started small. I started really tiny. I, one example was um, I always drove everyone everywhere because I was, you know, I'd have one or two drinks, but mm. that's it. So I was always designated driver, and they were working out where they were all going, and one day... I shut my mouth. Well, I was in Al-Anon and I was learning to just be quiet and listen and let other people have 
involvement rather than taking over the conversation and arranging everything and organising everyone. Mm. So I didn't say, well, I'll drive. I just shut my mouth and listened and waited. And someone across the room turned around and go, oh, I don't mind driving. I've got work the next morning. <laughs> and I stood back and waited for the, the sky to fall in like Chicken Little. Oh, my God. That's they're a really, really good at, lesson, yeah. Yeah, they're all going to look at me and go, well, for God's sake, you're supposed to, you know, you're, that's your job. You're supposed to look after us all when we're all drunk and disorderly. <laughs> and little tiny things, bit by bit by bit, I stopped volunteering at the school for the school mums and this and that. I stopped putting my hand up to say yes. I, I hadn't even learnt to say no yet, but what I did do was I stopped pushing myself forward and saying, oh, I'll do that. Yep, yep, I'll take that on. Yep, I can do that. Because mm. if you want something done, you ask a busy person. Mm-hmm. So slowly, 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 I started to build the confidence in myself to just pause before I opened my mouth. And to just sit back in my chair. And I heard something recently that I've taken with me every day and it's like, you know, you've bought a ticket to the circus and you can actually sit in the audience telling you don't have to be <laughs> the ringmaster. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. yeah. Because my, I felt my role was to be the ringmaster. Mm-hmm. And so, my dad would say, you look after your little brother. And yeah. he'd look at me and he'd go, you look after your mother, you make sure she's not drunk when I get home from work. And I'd come home from school, I'd stand at the door holding my little brother's hand and I was terrified whether I'd open that door and she'd be sober or whether she'd be drunk out of her brain and just she was a blackout drinker. She'd do terrible things, wake up the next Mm. day, look at me and go, what's up your ass? Why are you such Mm. a grumpy bugger today? And Mm. it's like, no way, mate. You hurt me last night and you've got no recollection. There must have been a lot when you first came to Al-Anon. There must have been a lot of that coming back to you and just the injustice of that, it must have been hard to deal yeah. with the resentment. Well, do you know what I did, Anne? I got outside help. Uh-huh. I got professional help. Yep, yep. Um, in Al-Anon, we, we don't talk about the alcoholic. We talk about ourselves. We talk about our behaviour and our, our um, things that we used to do that don't work for us anymore that we need to change. And the things that I'd been through with my life story needed professionals. Yeah. I had a sponsor. I got a sponsor and I was able to share at length with the sponsor. Yep. Uh, we'd have a cup of tea and a cake and, and chat and I'd have a cry and it'd be just wonderfully cathartic and then she'd send me off with a little bit of homework and then I went to psychologists and psychiatrists for medication and for the heavy-duty stuff. Yep. So I think that that meant that I had this beautiful fellowship. I had the friends that I could call in the fellowship to talk when I was feeling low or even if something good was happening and they could call me. Then I had my meetings to go to. Then I had the professional help. Mm. And I was able to talk to my GP and and explain. These symptoms were the symptoms of... Like, I was diagnosed at six with abdominal migraine. And and I was told later on in life that was just because you were so stressed as a child... Mm that every morning you wake up vomiting mm. and diarrhoea because you were so upset to yep. see mum so hungover 
and then I'd be thrown in the deep end to make lunches and cook breakfasts and get everyone out the door. And my brother and I dressed and off to school when I was eight. Yep. No uh, wonder I was sick. Yep. Uh, we're going to take another break, um, Andrea, and um, we'll play a song and we'll be back shortly. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. And on 3CR 855, get your slice of local film action every Thursday at 11am. For half an hour, get a dose of what's new. And who's who in the art of film. Join Annie and Muhammad for Showreel on Thursday, 11am, 3CR 855 on your AM dial. See you then. That boy 
Global Intifada, bringing you current affairs through revolutionary and protest music from around the world. Every Thursday afternoon from 5 till 6 on 3CR. Because music is our bomb. This is a Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And we're talking with Andrea about recovery from the effects of living with an alcoholic. Uh, I should say also the song we heard before was 8-Ball Atkin with um, Lonely Long. Um, so, so where are you now? Can you tell us where are you now in your life, how, how all that is sure. for you? Okay. Just on that point, too, of how devastating it is, it's, it's amazing because I've um, spoken at AA meetings, open AA meetings, and I've shared my story. And I've had people come up to me after a meeting, especially women, when I've sh- shared about my relationship with my mum especially, they've come up to me and they've looked at me and they've said, oh, my God, I've never heard of Al-Anon. Mm. Um, this is the alcoholic. And they've said, I've never heard of Al-Anon. And I had no idea that I was hurting anyone but myself. It's not like I'm smoking in front of my kids and they're getting secondhand yeah. smoke and they'll get sick. Like, I drink. I'm the only one drinking. I'm the only one putting it in my system. I had no idea it was affecting anyone but myself. And the alcoholism, the alcoholics and drug addicts, it's, it's one, one part of the disease. It's an extremely selfish disease. Because their entire focus is on when the next drink, when they're getting the next drink, when they can have the next drink. Everything else becomes secondary. And, and if, they, if they've blacked, children. if they've blacked out too, um, they actually literally don't remember. No, you know, as you mentioned, my mum didn't. Yeah, no, nothing. She had no recollection of the day before, and that happened every day. Mm. And, and she would pass out on the floor, and um, just. Drink, just keep pouring drinks in until passed out, and Dad would just pour drinks in until it was bedtime, mm-hmm. or until the drinks ran out. Most alcoholics will drink what's in the house, yep. all of it, and they won't go to bed until it's over mm. or gone. Mm. But where I am now, look, I'm extremely lucky. Um, I met my second husband the year I found Alanon, and I'd left that first marriage already, so that was. I'd, I'd done that without Alan on. I'd done that on my own, taken my two children. I think that time when I left my home of origin, found a flat, moved in with nothing, helped. It seemed devastating at the time, but when I left my husband, I put the kids, four and five-year-old, in the car and I drove away. I had $20 in my purse and I never went back. And I started again with nothing. I had to go to the Selvos. I had to go to Centrelink. I had to get help. I didn't go to my family and I didn't go to my friends because they were all alcoholics and they weren't interested in helping me anyway. But um, meeting my second husband uh, has been a gift from God. Mm -hmm. I have a relationship where I am... He he thinks the sun shines from me. (laughs) He just adores me. He loves me. Um, You know, I like routine. I like things to be tidy and normal and organised. In, in a safe, happy way. Um, I still have mental health issues. Um, 
So I'm a bit of hard work for him occasionally, but <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't shy from that. He supports my recovery journey through Al-Anon. He comes away with me to all the camps that we attend together. Everyone knows him. All my Al-Anon friends know and love him. Um, he doesn't attend Al-Anon meetings. He did the first year I met him. He came along with me. He qualifies, so he came along with me. But he's one of these people that just doesn't need Al-Anon. Mm. He kind of just lives in the day. Mm. He loves the day. He loves me. He loves his job. He's happy. And he doesn't go there. He doesn't go to the past, whereas, unfortunately, my programming's always been to reminisce and, and you know, stew yeah. over and yeah. worry over and think over. Yeah. But nowadays, I've learned through the program, I've learned to let go and let God. And I, I really do. I've let go of people. I've dropped the rope. You know, yep. tug of war? Yep. When you're all, all on one side and all on the other side and you're pulling and pulling and it, it's futile. Yep. People are going to fall on the ground and get hurt yep. or strain their backs. Including you. So I've, yeah, oh, I've been there, done that my whole life. And Alan taught me to drop the rope. Mm. It taught me to look in the mirror and focus on myself. And tell me, I'm curious, Andrea, about how you coped having a man that uh, that loves you. And that, Good that, question. that must have been quite a challenge actually. It was a, it was an extreme it was an extreme challenge because every time he said how beautiful I was, I'd look at him and I'm like, I'm not. I'm not. Mm. And you know what? He just got up every day and looked at me and said, How I'm so lucky to be your husband. I love you so much. You're so wonderful. Every night I cook tea and he tells me it's the best meal I've ever cooked. <laughs> and now I run around the house you know, I run around the house going, yay, I'm the best. Yeah. I'm the best wife. I'm the best wife. He bought me coffee cups saying best wife. Uh-huh. I believe it now. We're 23 years in, nearly yeah. 24 years in, and I believe it now. Yeah. But it took me a long, long time. Yeah. If anyone was nice to me or came up to me and put their arm around me, I would just start crying. Mm. I was like, don't be nice to me. Don't be nice to me. Because it opened. I had put a massive brick wall up around my heart yeah. to protect me. Because my heart had been shattered mm. over and over and over by people who should have loved me, cared for me, and protected me. Mm. They were the ones. It's not stranger danger. The people in my own home hurt me the most. Yep. So once you build the wall, no nice stuff can come in either. And no nice stuff can come out. So with the love and support of Al-Anon, the fellowship, and my husband, I've been able to break... And the, and the professional support. Mm. I've brought those walls down and I've let the light in mm. to that dark, crusty heart mm. and it's pumping fresh blood again. And mm. I'm happy and healthy and well. Um, I never take my Al-Anon program for granted. I go to meetings through the week. I do my Zoom meetings. Ballarat's got two face-to-face meetings that I attend, um, which is wonderful and we sit and have a cuppa afterwards and some nibblies and catch up with each other and talk about what the topic was. Each each meeting we have a different person takes a turn to chair and they choose the topic for the day and we all share on that and talk about that or share on what, what's been our issue for the week. And it's not a, a natter with your mate cup of tea. It's mm. a structure. Yep, and it's and a deeper it's a conversation. Program. Yep, And we follow the 12 steps of AA itself. Yep. We've found them to be sound and wise in helping us relate to our lives. And there's a lot of people who have family members in AA 
So these two programs work hand in hand Mm -hmm. and they work well in a marriage with people who have Al-Anon and AA. There's Alateen for the teenagers, which is all online. You can go to a Zoom Alateen meeting for the kids and they can can learn tools of the program to help manage themselves and manage their feelings, thoughts and um, behaviours and choices and decisions. And has it helped you with your relationship with your own children? I have gone no contact with both of my children. Mm-hmm. And Eleanor has helped me do that, yes. Yep. I've needed to protect myself from two very sick narcissistic drug addicts. Ah, oh, so they're now they're addicts as well. Yep. Yep. So I have no contact and that protects me yep. from the drama, yep. the trauma, and I hope and pray that one day, like so many people do, they'll walk in the doors of a 12-step meeting yep. and they'll get the help that they, they need when they need it. And I do know, Anne, that with my ex and with my boys, I've done everything humanly possible to guide them to making the right choices and decisions around yep. getting professional help and 12-step help and rehab help and I've called in priests. I've done. I've. I can walk away knowing I've done everything yeah. humanly possible. And now it's time for me to save myself and protect myself. And I do not associate with people. I don't have them in my life if they're unwell, unhealthy, or or not good to be around for me. I don't yeah. do it. And and if you're if they bring you down, you're no good to them anyway. So. Well, they brought yeah. me. Everyone yeah. brought me yeah. to my knees. Yeah. And what do you do now um, with the help of the Al-Anon program and even with your outside help, if you do start to worry about your kids or something, what, what kind of tools have you got to cope with that? Every single day I think of them. I'm the mum. Absolutely. I, you know, every single day. I didn't have a higher power when I came to Al-Anon. I, I grew up with a Catholic God and I thought he was just, he could go F himself, really, and that's how I felt. Because I thought, how could there be a God when my life is like this? Mm-hmm. I was devastated. Mm-hmm. And through the program, I've learned to trust. I learned first to trust the group. Then I learned to trust the universe, Mother Nature. And now I have back a beautiful God of my own understanding, which is similar to the God of my Catholic upbringing, except he doesn't think I'm a sinner and evil and I'm going to hell. He hasn't He's got a bad attitude. Yeah, he's at my back. He's got a plan for me. He's got a plan for my children. I pray every morning that he has them in his hands. And every night I get into bed and I see in my mind's eye a beautiful Angora blanket and I wrap both my sons Mm. in these blankets and I hand them to their higher power and I go to sleep. Mm. I sleep all night every night now. I, I, I was diagnosed insomniac because I didn't sleep because I was involved in their lives. They're in their 30s. Yep. They're grown men. Yep. I've done, I've done enough for them. Now it's their turn, and you know, they'll either find it or they won't, and that's up to them and their higher power and their journey and their soul. Yep. You know, lessons to learn on this plane. Yep. Yeah. And at least, and you're not making it any worse. You're there as somebody that no. they, they can come back to, um, and 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 you'll love them when they come back. Yeah, I will. And mm. with the help of the program and the fellowship. I'm able to maintain serenity around that decision that I've made. Yep. It didn't come easily and it took me a few years. 
Yeah. So what kind of and things that, would you have done with those kids um, before you realised that, that... Oh, I got in the car at 3 o'clock in the morning and went flying over and grabbed them and mm. threw them in the car and drove them to hospital and emergency. And, you know, I did all of the all of the things and dragged them out of dreadful situations because they always rang me. Yeah. I was reliable. Yep. And they always rang me and it was always dire and I was always desperate and I was the one that always dealt with it and paid for it and sorted it and fixed it. Yep. And Eleanor teaches me that that's, that's not helpful to them. Mm-hmm. They'll, nev- they'll, they'll, they'll never learn from their own mistakes and suffer any consequences mm. if someone takes those roles for yep. them. Yep. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, enabling yep. bad behaviour. Yeah. Yep. So, so I'm happy. I'm a happy, happy girl and I'm really really grateful the day I walked in those doors and I recommend if anyone's listening and if you're unsure, you know, ring the hotline, talk to someone, Mm. go to a meeting, sit in the back and just listen. You don't have to talk. Mm -hmm. You're welcome to just come and observe. Mm. And the amazing thing is that, that, uh, and it's something I'm still learning, that uh, you can be happy even if people around you that you love are suffering. And that Absolutely. just goes against everything that society tells you, or or every. It actually goes against your um, intuitions, doesn't it? Because you think if I love them and they're suffering, I've got to help. And That's when right. you're dealing with addiction, uh, your help is not helpful. No, it wasn't. I could lead the horse to water. Yeah. And I tell you, I grabbed them by the neck and I tried to push their heads in, and I just yeah couldn't get them there. Couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. They have to. They have to want it for them. Yeah. And then they have to do it for them. Exactly. You know, there's people say, oh, I bought rehab and I took my son to rehab and it's like, oh, and he's relapsed again. It's like, well, of course, because he did it for you, not for himself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hard lesson, isn't it, though, Andrea? Oh, painful as a parent. Mm-hmm. That's why you need Eleanor. That's why you need support. You need support. You need the 12 steps and traditions. Yeah. Um, mm. And with that, that support is because it's really special because there's other people that that go, yep, I did that, and they know they know exactly how you feel. Then they're, they're not um, separated from it, and they've got lived experience too. So that's right. And mm. and Eleanor's not just for people who have alcoholics. Now we have so many parents in Eleanor. We have specific parents groups. Yep. Because there are so many young ones who are drug addicts now. Yep. Or or dabbling or doing the wrong thing, yeah. and the parents can come along and get. Advice, not advice, but they can come along and hear how other parents manage exactly their yeah. lives yeah. And by allowing their eighteen and overs to do what they're doing. Yeah, we've, we've only got one minute left. Have you got? Can you say something for one minute to someone listening today who is um, facing the difficulties that you faced? What would be your one message? Yeah, there's definitely hope. There's hope for a better life and a better future for everyone. And quite regularly, when people come to Al-Anon and start to get better and start to heal and start to get off their back, they then have to have some consequences and they then start to look around and think, well, maybe I'll go and listen to this AA stuff. Maybe, mm-hmm. I'll, maybe I'll go and talk to my doctor. So many people find recovery in AA because their partner is an Al-Anon mm-hmm. member. Yep. It, 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 it works. Through the family, when we start to get better, it gives people incentive to have a look at themselves. Mm. And it starts going in the mm. upward direction. It does. It does. It rubs off. Yep. Look, that is all we've got time for. So I'd like to thank Andrea for sharing her experience with us today. Thanks so much, Andrea, for um, the way you told your story. 
Thanks for having me, Anne. Thanks, Thank- everybody. Good Thank- luck. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, if you're concerned about problem drinking in a relative or friend and would like to find out more about Al-Anon family groups, then you can phone them on 1300 252 666 or go online at alanon.org.au. If you're concerned about your own drinking and would like to find out more about AA, you can give them a call on 1300 222 222 or visit their website at aa.org.au. Coming up next, we have Balam Wa, The Spirit of Wa, hosted by Uncle Taojim Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. Left after breakfast. 38 years of information, insights, analysis and opinion. Just plain old common sense, really. 8.30 a.m. on Fridays. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.